Last time on Friendly Fire, we discussed a really good movie that Clint Eastwood made about the Battle of Iwo Jima, Letters from Iwo Jima. But that film came out just a couple of months after a different Clint Eastwood film about the Battle of Iwo Jima, this one, Flags of Our Fathers. And the first one, this one, was not very good and probably sapped energy from that one at the box office. And that's a bummer, because here on Friendly Fire, we like what we like. And when we like something, we want the world to see it. We don't care about all the other garbage, unless by we, you mean Adam. Eastwood's premise was to make two films, one from the American perspective and one the Japanese, which is a cool idea with lots of potential, full of shots of the same moment in the battle seen from both sides. The two enemies, each convinced the other is a faceless devil when really they have more in common than they realize. Two soldiers on opposite sides, both of whom love Louis Prima and Kabuki Theater. They bayonet each other only to realize as they lay dying that both have the same Roadrunner tattoo. The potential for mesmerizing puzzles woven through the two movies was an opportunity to create a pair of cult classics that would make Apocalypse Now look like Red Dawn 2. But sadly, weirdly, Eastwood made his American film about some home front horse hockey. Now, spoiler alert. The iconic photograph of U.S. Marines raising the flag on Mount Suribachi, the one that inspired the Marine Corps War Memorial in Arlington, the one that is the first thing that comes to mind when someone says, Marines raising flag on Iwo Jima. You know the one. Well, that one was kind of not what it purported to be. Bear with me. You see, once upon a time, people cared about journalism and truth and accuracy and had an expectation that the big institutions of government, media, churches, universities, and major corporations would all conduct themselves with integrity. I know, weird, right? And maybe those institutions were serving steakums and calling it French ribeye, but notions of integrity, even fake integrity, governed society to such a degree that at one time, a president of the United States resigned because he was caught lying. Now we can argue all day whether people lied in the past, but we don't need to. They did. But there was a pervading sense then that there was a reality that happened, and that reality could be perceived simultaneously by multiple people who would not disagree too much about what they'd seen, and that you could draw conclusions or make judgments about events according to a shared system of Judeo-Christian values and belief in American enterprise and love of apples and pigtails and swimming holes and every damn dog spot in this whole great amber waves of grain loving USA. Now this belief was mostly a fraud if you want to unpack everything, but at least Russian intelligence wasn't blackmailing the President of the United States with a videotape of him getting peed on by Ukrainian sex workers in a Moscow hotel while he said Barack Obama over and over in a stage whisper. The flag raising over Iwo Jima happened like this. Some Marines hooked a little battle flag to a pipe and they stuck it in a hole in the top of Mount Suribachi. No one else was up there except these guys that kind of fought their way to the top. Everybody cheered when they saw the flag, but there were a lot of Navy guys who couldn't see it, so some officer said to some runner, here, take this big flag up there. And the runner took the big flag up to the top, and some other guys tied it to a bigger pipe, and they stuck that pipe in a bigger hole. Now, a photographer and a movie camera guy were there for that one, and they took pictures, and it looked really cool and dramatic and rad. And you have to admit, it's a rad picture. If you study the picture, it's not entirely clear why all those dudes need to be there, but they are Marines and they're used to working as a team. 
So the world loved the picture and everyone wanted to know who these flag raising guys were. And somebody made a list and it had some guys who raised the first flag on it and it had some guys from the second flag. And in the meantime, some of those guys from both lists had died in the subsequent battles because kind of like George Bush in his flight suit declaring mission accomplished, there was still a little bit of war that happened after the flag went up. Now, neither one of these flag raisings happened under machine gun fire and neither were staged and all the Marines involved were all in on the same action, but the people of the world wanted the picture to be true. That is, the true idea that it represented, which was the first flag raised by some heroic guys immediately after the battle, not the bigger flag raised by some other guys so the guys in the Navy could see it from far away. Anyway, this is what passed for a scandal in 1942. And that's understandable because the Andrews sisters were considered really swinging music in 1942 and movies cost a nickel. But what is surprising is that Eastwood thought this was the more interesting topic for a movie than the American perspective of the Battle of Iwo Jima contrasted with their Japanese adversaries. Sure, there's a story here about three American servicemen who go back to the States to sell war bonds with the photograph as a powerful motivating symbol of hope and the ghosts of the other men in the photo follow them and they find themselves telling lies to comfort grieving mothers and they feel conflicted and dishonest and the guy from Mad Men makes them feel dirty and they get drunk and they fist fight. Doesn't this sound like a blockbuster? There is an interesting movie in the center of this boring movie and it's about Ira Hayes, a member of the Pima people of Arizona who was part of the flag raising squad one or the other, and actually made a cameo in a movie we've watched already, The Sands of Iwo Jima from 1949. He suffered from alcoholism and found himself the token Native American for an entire war effort, exploited and discriminated against and ultimately abandoned. Now, there's a great movie yet to be made about Ira Hayes, and in this movie, Adam Beach does a tremendous job playing him. But that movie won't need a companion movie all in Japanese that has nothing to do with it. I love having the benefit of hindsight here because I do these intros a long time after we record the shows. Long enough that half the time I forget whether we liked it or not. So I don't really benefit much from the hindsight. But in this case, we wish Eastwood had done something differently because we needed a different movie from him than the one we got. You present each mother with a flag, they say a few words, people will shit money. It'll be so moving. Today on Friendly Fire, Flags of Our Fathers. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that has its masturbation papers signed in triplicate. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I like a nice prank among the troops. <laughs> you don't see too many pranks in uh, letters from Iwo Jima. No, you don't. <laughs> but there, there's a, a little bit more lightheartedness on the American side. Yeah. I guess those guys prank that guy when they bomb his horse. That was a bad prank. Yeah. I really got the bends tonally going from letters to this film. Did you? You yeah. were like, whoa, I went back up to the surface too fast and there's nitrogen in my 
comedy blood. <laughs> Might have been better seen on a different day, I think. Because I really wanted to sit with letters from Iwo Jima a little while. Yeah. I think it's deserving of that kind of thoughtfulness. It's I'm why not I went, sure this film is. I went back to, to letters from Iwo Jima after this, as I said on our last show, because they're, they're, because I expected them to be companion pieces. Yeah. And in a way, they they are it's just that part of that the part of the effectiveness of it is that the american experience was was so different a vastly different thing and we spent so much time in this movie talking about things that were i think very dramatic from an american perspective but when you contrast it with the japanese who were fighting literally man to man and you know getting burned out of holes until you know one one thing we didn't talk about was of the of the 20,000 Japanese soldiers on Iwo Jima, something like 250 survived at, at all. And most of those were just like, like we saw in that movie, people that kind of got knocked out and yeah. carried off. The one guy that convinced himself he was going to go strap a bunch of mines to himself and roll <laughs> under a tank, but right. no tank happened to come by. Right. And they found him asleep in a cave and were like, hold it. <laughs> uh, but in this movie, that was a real story, by the way. Was it? Yeah, that's based on... I mean, it was, the guy wasn't named Lieutenant Ito, but that's something that uh, a real survivor of Iwo Jima was uh, known to have done. But in this movie, we see like a photograph taken on uh, the top of Suribachi goes global, and within a few days, it's, it's recognized as like a propaganda... Uh, coup, and we need to get those guys who are on the battlefield on a remote island uh, uh, on the other side of the world, and we need to get them back to the United States and parade them around to raise money by selling war bonds. It's just such a... So they get Tom Hanks and a ragtag group to go <laughs> looking for them. <laughs> you see the two worlds in such stark contrast watching the two movies, where if we saw Flags of Our Fathers without letters from Iwo Jima it would just feel like sort of a, a 1950s war movie almost. Yeah. Or They're an, both about national pride, but the word is the only thing that's similar between them. Like the definition of those things on either side are so different. They also both have that device of like spending a little time in 2005 at the beginning and end and then right. spending... A lot Ooh, of the t- I did not like that part of this film at all. And this film really beats you over the head with it. It it cuts back to it several times through the the movie, and it's uh, Tom McCarthy interviewing various people who are part of the propaganda push to sell the war bonds, or or you know personally knew the the flag raisers or or whatever. That felt very Spielbergy. I mean, that's absolutely how yeah. Saving Private Ryan started and ended. Um trying to locate the movie in our in our minds but it did feel really tell me i'm a good man (laughs) sure like you know what everyone has a great relationship with their dad that's something that we can all relate to tell me i didn't leave iggy behind in a foxhole (laughs) you were the best dad a man could want (laughs) pretty corny 
Adam did the uh, the classic podcast double thumbs down there, just to, just to let people know that Adam does have some something to contribute. It's just not an oral experience. Adam had to learn how to laugh out loud. Now he has to learn how to emoji out loud. I'm thinking I have to unlearn all of those great podcast tricks. <laughs> Got to throw away the book. So it didn't. It, uh, this movie didn't ring for you, huh? The idea of a war film being about a scandal and about how flimsy and desperate a nation's need for something prideful is at a crucial moment is really interesting to me. But there is a lot of frosting on this cake, and the frosting it comes in the part of the, of the scenes in the future. I don't think this film needs to flash back and forward at all for you to get that. Like, I understand that th- that there is truth to this story that it's based on, and, like, you sell the book so that it's contingent on telling those aspects of it. Like, I understand that there are mechanics to how this gets done, but, like, I didn't care to know about those relationships. And to me, the more interesting story is the scandal. It's not about a son's love for his father or a son not understanding his father or his decisions or or whatever. I think that's yeah, well, tropey. It's, it's also particularly strange because the Ryan Phillippe character is not a particularly interesting character in the wartime portions of the film. Like, of the three that go around and do the tour, he's the least interesting. And the Adam Beach character the that who played Ira Hayes is like by far the most interesting and he for my money is the star of the film probably who the 2005 stuff should be ruminating on if anybody and it's like the 2005 stuff is like distracted at all times by the grown son who wants to know what his dad's experience was more and his dad's experience turns out to have not been as interesting by half as the people that were around him. Or anyone from Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah. At, that's, it's unfair, like, to watch them on the same day, it is super unfair to both films to pit them against each other, but I just felt like... Letters, Two films enter, yeah. one film leaves. <laughs> Letters gave us characters that were fully developed and interesting and... The characters in Flags were just extremely shallow feeling. This movie's trying to be four different movies, maybe. It's amazing that this was the one that had all the special effects budget. This was the expensive movie. I mean, this was the one that they had all the, you know, the landing craft, the CGI landing craft, which didn't look very good, but did look pretty expensive. Yeah. But the bombing raids, I thought, looked amazing. Bombing raids? You just never see that perspective in a war film. Like, I thought those were really well done. Yeah, like from the cockpit. Yeah. Uh, Both from in the cockpit, but also the wide shot, the wide establishing shot of the mountain and the bombs falling in the distance. Yeah. And the sound design is great. I mean, this is another couple of films that win sound design categories in in award ceremonies for good reason. Like, really great stuff. I mean, Flying Leathernecks, we saw all those shots, but they were actually real shots of the war and from a hollywood perspective this the special effects here came as close as yeah. as you can or maybe not as close as you can but did a good job when this movie came out this was all really recent 
news. The famous picture from Iwo Jima was known for a long time that that was the second flag raising, but that the men depicted in the picture weren't the ones that that uh, we all thought they were. Hmm. That was kind of recent news. Um, there were men that that spent their whole adult lives having drinks bought for them because they were in that photograph that it turned out they weren't in the picture. And in some cases, I think maybe that wasn't discovered until after they died. Hmm. So the expose part of this film feels really located in the moment it was made. Do other countries have this problem? Like, what is a good example of another country needing to gin up a story to either sell war bonds or, like, solidify a populace's patriotism behind it? Like, America did this with Pat Tillman. America ostensibly did it with the flag raising at Iwo Jima. Like, this seems to be a pattern of, if not dishonesty, like, manipulation that is unfortunate. And is this just a byproduct of a country's war making and its need to uh, to tell its own story in a heroic fashion? Or is this just an American specific problem? No, this is a this is, I think, universally true of a country at war. If you think of the way the Soviet Union would pick people um and turn them in, you know, lionize them and turn them into heroes of the Soviet Union. Like Vasily Zaitsev and uh, right, right. Enemy of the Gates. Enemy of the Gates. And, you know, there was the, there were the female fighter pilots in Russia that became a kind of a rallying point. And I think even uh, Kurabayashi in Japan at the time was like a hero that we should all rally around. So I think that is, that's a common thing. It's just America is such a publicity culture. Yeah. And we had, in all of these wars, so much money. Oh, and also our country was never at risk of being invaded. So you have all these scenes of like life on, in America is kind of just going along. People are wearing fedoras and driving cars around and having champagne, caviar. A lot of parties. Big parties. And and the idea of raising money, I think in in Russia or Germany or Japan during these wars, they're going house to house taking all your pots and pans to melt down to make bullets. And in the United States, it's more like donate, you know, like, like the support like, our Kickstarter. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> UNICEF, you know, like, Hey guys, we're going to Iwo Jima in a month and it'd be really great if we could hit the $10,000 goal. <laughs> One of our extension goals is to, uh, is yeah, to right. then further uh, our assault on the home islands with some new kinds of bombs we're thinking about inventing. <laughs> If you donate at the $500 level, your son will come home alive. <laughs> Jesus. I just remembered you were there too. The, the idea that the Secretary of the Treasury would be saying to these guys, if we don't raise $14 billion, we're going to lose the war, is a kind of a, a uniquely American catastrophization. Because, no, what you do then is you start... Because they were... My mom talks about the war years where they all took the bumpers off their cars and gave them to these metal drives to get like high quality steel. And, you know, and there was rationing and stuff, but the American people themselves didn't really feel that much privation. Um, so yeah, if you run out of cash money to build ships, you just, 
you'd go to the next level, which is what he was saying. We're printing money and and it's creating inflation, but it's not like the war would grind to a halt. It's not like they'd America would have said, well, couldn't get any loans, so <laughs> so that hey, scene Winston. was about him manipulating the participants in this program, and less about the the honesty of how bad the circumstance was for the country. I mean, the idea that America fought that war, and I think it's true, but America fought those wars by just raising money mm-hmm. at home, as opposed to the way other countries fought the war, which was that they completely militarized the entire nation, and every single thing they did or made or thought about was, right. was because they were fighting wars of survival. Right. And this was we were fighting. It wasn't a war of adventure necessarily, but we were, we were supplying war material to the Russians and to the British and to. I mean, we were financing the war as much as fighting it. I mean, the other side of that, and you see this in both films, is just the like stupendous number of ships that we threw at Iwo Jima. Like it looks like the Greeks showing up at Troy when. Right. Those those ships are like steaming across the Pacific toward Iwo Jima. Boiler alert! We haven't watched Troy yet. <laughs> I I was referencing the Greek myth, not the crappy Brad Pitt film. <laughs> Put it on the list. Thanks for explaining my joke to me, Ben. <laughs> what is this Twitter? <laughs> that's was that the one, Oliver Stone? That's Didn't the one scene. Troy? The one scene between both shows. Uh, no, he did the uh, one about Alexander the Great. If like, we're going to talk about the movie Troy right now, I have some very strong feelings about it. It's on the list. We can we can talk about it when it comes up. And we will be randomly selecting a film by the end of this episode, unlike the last episode. Let's take this movie and eliminate all of the Saving Private Ryan style um, tear jerky stuff that happened in, you know, flash forward to 2005 or whatever. And just look at the movie... I love the idea that Clint Eastwood is like, yeah, Tom Hanks is cool and everything, but what if I cast that character with Barry Pepper? (laughs) (laughs) It's so Private Ryan, those scenes, and and done not very well. But let's take those out and just look at it as the Iwo Jima scenes and then the the tour of America that the three quote-unquote heroes of Iwo Jima did. This movie is a little confusing because it's flashing between three different time periods and, mm-hmm. and not just two because the entire time they're on the tour they are being subjected to fireworks going off that give them PTSD flashbacks to the battle so we get the battle through those those flashbacks but then the entire thing is a flashback from 2005 also and when it flashes forward and when it flashes back is never never feels like super well motivated it's also a technology to make you never feel safe and grounded in a way that might help you understand how terrible it feels to be these soldiers right and and like the seriousness of ptsd is never actually confronted i mean ira hayes is depicted as being an alcoholic and just an alcoholic not somebody who is coping with having seen right horrible things well i don't know i mean i i feel like it's pretty it's tough to take his alcoholism and contextualize it because it's being used in the language at the time to sort of discredit him as an indian and to uh it's it's another form of bigotry or another reason that people 
are in their own moment, they justify their own bigotry against him. Mm-hmm. But we see we see him experience, and, and, and that's another thing that was kind of unclear in the movie, because he experiences some awful stuff in battle. And the first three or four times it flashes back to him on Iwo Jima, he behaves really heroically. Yeah. And then the movie kind of can't decide whether it wants him to be a hero or just a just a witness or just a, um, a victim. And so then it stops giving him as many heroic moments. He stops firing his gun as much and he's subjected to a lot of violence, people getting blown up around him. Right. And with Ryan Filippi, is that how we're agreeing his name is pronounced? Filippi, I think. He, because he's a medic, he's a great proxy for us to be brutalized, right? Everything he sees, he's not so much with gun in hand as much as he is running from one blown up dude to another. So we see his trauma. Yeah. And and he's like definitely a hero. He's a hero for sure, but but not a But he seems like an uncomplicated hero. Right. He doesn't exactly go on a journey. He's just sort of so even keeled. Even his flashback scenes are just like, whoa, ouch. Yeah. But he doesn't he's not like drowning his sorrows. I mean, one thing that like the that both movies mention is that the Japanese were being told to target Corman, and it's it's just kind of tossed into letters from Iwo Jima in a way that, like, not having seen the entirety of the film yet, I was just like, "Geez, fuck!" Like, this kind of makes the Japanese look like assholes in this moment. And then in Flags of Our Fathers. Uh, he's like packing up his first aid kit on the ship before they before they do the landing on the beach and somebody comes by and is just like hey buddy by the way they're probably going to kill you because you're a corpsman anyways bye and yeah, right. Ryan Phillippe is like cool good to know bro thank you <laughs> yeah maybe you want to uh, take a sharpie and black out that red cross on your bag <laughs> they, they don't do the like ECU of him going like gulp you know he never we don't ever feel like he is actually being specifically targeted when he's in the battle scenes, do we? No, although there is a scene where uh, one of his fellow corpsmen is is shot and he goes out to try and help him and that's kind of maybe one of the turning points in his personal yeah. narrative. I agree with you that what this movie should have been is it should have been the story of Ira Hayes. Like he's a character, he's a real life person who had an extremely weird experience of the world came from a reservation fought uh, bravely got turned into a celebrity couldn't deal with that form of American celebrity that was so I mean so outside of his reality suffered from PTSD and alcoholism and then after oh and and also like incredible bigotry yeah and redeployed after being made a celebrity right redeployed fought more and then suffered from a thing that like reinforced a prejudice people already had toward people like him right it's a form of tragedy here that I think is awful like he has he becomes the thing that people saw him as from the start and then he comes back to the united states and tries to convince the native com- native american community that this was a positive experience and he you yeah. know and the fact that he was made a hero was good for all native americans and and they kind of go you know, kind of, we'll believe it when we see it. Smattering of applause. It turns out to not have been true at all. It's, you know, he comes back and is just like, 
uh, ends up working as a sharecropper and then dies a pauper's death. Like what a incredible story that was that's worth a movie. Yeah, and that and Adam Beach is like incredibly cast because he yeah. looks so much like Ira Hayes. And that movie is inside this movie. It really is. And Adam Beach's performance is unbelievably great. Like he's he just like the camera totally loves him, and yeah. it's like Clint Eastwood is distracted with a bunch of other crap and like didn't cut enough away it seems like this film can be compared to another war film and it's not letters from iwo jima it's courage under fire there are some choices made in this film that made me think that clean eastwood is like i am specifically not going to do what that film did and i think it is to its detriment because hmm. there is there's a way that courage under fire tells its story about a cover-up and about grief by those who participate in that story that I think is more effective than what happens here. And I wonder why, like, and it's the skips around, I think, that, that undermine a lot of the power that these characters have and a lot of the grief that we're meant to feel in, in seeing them. I agree. I think, like, there's so many moments, like, when they go to the party and they're, like, trying to point out which of the guys in the photo is which of the guys who is reputed to have been in it to the mothers who are grieving their dead sons and they feel awful about it but the movie never interrogates the those feelings like it doesn't go any further past just like them having that kind of like one note emotion about it yeah yeah that lack of interrogation is really i'd like to interrogate that yeah yeah i can't take them calling me a hero there's a moment halfway through the movie where you where i at least felt like okay we need an establishing flashback. If you're going to keep flashing us back to Iwo Jima, like take us there and leave us there for a while and give us a sense of what made these guys and introduce us to everyone in a way that's not like this is a bad war movie to have three or four of the of the characters be indistinguishable from one another. <laughs> I mean, there were guys who were in the photograph and the question of whether they were there or not was a big part of the movie and I couldn't have told you what they looked like or who they were. Right. And we're looking at their mothers. I, I knew talking their moms. about Hank and yeah. Harlan. Harlan. And, uh, like, is that, is Hank short for Harlan in there? Right. Uh, I mean, I knew that... Harlan's mom really well by the end, but I couldn't have told you which guy was Harlan. And, and then when we finally get to those scenes, I still couldn't have picked Harlan out of a lineup. Right. Yeah. And so there was a point where the flashbacks became a distraction because they were there to support the story of the USO tour rather than doing the job they needed to do, like doing the doing the heavy lifting of making those characters. I got tired of like, oh, the fireworks go off and all of a sudden we're transported back to the battlefield. Like that just felt really TV movie. And yet like I don't feel like any of these criticisms are the actor's fault like I liked the performances and I thought they were good but I thought the story failed them and what sucks is like the story is so interesting yeah I like Ryan Filippi's <laughs> face right he's a handsome actor I want to be with Ryan Filippi but I also I don't I'm not sure that I've ever seen a movie where he did anything but be himself there i mean do, what are some other movies that he's been in the way of the gun is great if you haven't seen that movie is he 
He's on a TV show now based on that Mark Wahlberg sniper movie, Shooter. He plays the the Mark Wahlberg character. Uh, I haven't seen any of it though. I like I like Ryan Felipe. I mean, he was he was good, but I couldn't tell whether the whether the fact that his character was not very interesting was a script problem, cruel or, intentions, a story problem. I don't. Oh, he I've was never great in that. I've never seen any of these movies. You don't stand a chance. Cruel intentions is great. Is it a war movie? It's a in a way like a romantic comedy, but you see it as a war movie. Oh, it's dark. <laughs> it's not really a comedy. Call it a comedy. Yeah. What about the way of a gun? Is that a war movie? Uh, in a more specific way than Cruel Intentions, yeah. It has a gun in it. There are, uh, there's some fairly major battle scenes in the way of the gun. Yeah. Well, anyway, I couldn't, I, I mean, I wanted to be on Team Ryan uh, Philippe, <laughs> but, I, but I also found, like you were saying, his character was kind of the least complicated or, or uh, he, had no, he had no arc beyond, like, well, we know one day he becomes a funeral director and, and has a heart attack on a staircase. But even the character played by Jesse Bradford. René Gagnon. Gagnon. <laughs> um, he, like, as the, as the kind of corny, publicity-hungry uh, guy that, uh, that early on in the movie, like, we see him kind of, we see the officer and sergeant conspiring to keep him off the battlefield because they don't feel like he's got the stuff. Yeah. And then he's then he spends the middle part of the movie uh, being a real slick operator. But then winds up being a janitor for the rest of his life. Really crazy, right? Because he seemed so ambitious and was portrayed as such a... Didn't make any sense to me. That, slick mover. Yeah, that, that he would have the kind of like the ability to... You know, roll with those punches in those moments, and and speak compellingly to crowds, and then not be able to get a job as a yeah as a, wonder, a car salesman. Is that historically true? I think so, and I mean, maybe maybe the movie did a bad job of of uh, depicting that he wasn't very smart. Look at this, Jesse Bradford is, is also in that Shooter TV series. Wow. Who knew? Who knew this TV series even existed? My name is Bob Lee Swagger. I did not kill the president. The arc that his character goes on is is more compelling. Uh, you could see a, a, a smaller movie being just about him and his ambition and his and the fact that he's briefly one of the most famous men in America and ends up living a life of obscurity and kind of like, like his girlfriend really shoulders her way into his fame and sees him as a ticket to glitz and glamor that you can see she imagines for herself. And then the idea that he ends up a janitor and they end up living a a humble life. Like there's a lot of potential sort of uh, story of comeuppance and yeah, he's the only one that wants fame and, Right, American Doesn't hubris, but he also he also acknowledges his shortcomings. Um, he and Ira have a rapprochement by the by the middle of the movie. It's always Bradley you're seen giving the speeches, though. Like you never see the Jesse Bradford character really. He gives step- the first one and then kind of steps back. Yeah, as the tour goes on, Ryan Philippe uh, uh-huh. is the guy at the podium every time. He finally embraces the role, right? Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. The battlefield scenes. How did they work for you guys? I think one thing that is better in this movie, maybe, than Letters from Iwo Jima is that when there's a battle scene, typically, like, the goal of it is pretty specific and clear, and, like, the geometry of it is pretty clear. Like, taking Surabachi is not hard to wrap your head around, like, what is involved in it. There are a couple of times where they just cut back, and it's just kind of, like somebody is like running around in the midst of exploding terrain and trying to patch somebody up or chuck a grenade into a pillbox or whatever. But for the most part, the the combat scenes in this, because you see them from the perspective of uh, above the ground, you can actually see what's going on. Whereas Letters from Iwo Jima, they're constantly just kind of like showing up in a, in a cave and going like, these are the guys that survived Surabachi or or these are evacuees from another engagement and you can never kind of tell like how long how much time has passed or like what what route they took from one place to another it seems like a fairly uncomplicated island in terms of like it's it's layout but uh I never quite felt like I knew where we were in letters from Iwo Jima so it was it was good to get a better sense of it in this film I thought a lot about how equivalent the like senselessness of death was as depicted on either side like you see guys kill themselves with grenades in a cave in letters but then you see tank treads drive over a possibly still living american soldier on the beach like the idea that the machine stops for no one on either side and as well as we might get to know the people there, like, nothing's going to stop that fucking tank. Right. Oh, my God, that scene where the guy falls overboard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On, uh, off the convoy, and everybody runs to the side like, ha, 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 you jerk. You know, here's a here's a, a, a life vest. We'll be right back. And then one of them says, oh, wait, we're not stopping. And no one is. And none of us will. And one after another ship will just roll by that dude while he's out there like, hey, 
hey and they just no hope for him by like that was that was a small moment but uh but like a heavy moment it told you what the rules were for the film and for the war the scene where we see the the grenade suicides but from the american perspective yeah where they're outside and they're like what's that sound and they go down into the cave and and having watched and you can only see it in the like in their in the flashlight beam woods yeah. lights yeah that's that's one moment where i really was glad that we watched them in the order that we did yeah because i don't think i would have understood what i was looking at in seeing this one without you know without having seen the other first i think that the the impact of that was so much better in this order Watching letters from Iwo Jima, though that's the the grenade suicides, the way they were depicted was there was a lot of you know they would clutch those grenades and then there would be a kind of blurred explosion and we just sort sort of saw the person disappear in a kind of cloud of yeah. smoke and maybe blood, but it wasn't it it wasn't especially gory. But then when we saw it from the Americans' perspective, it was like the goriest stuff in the whole movie. We saw their bodies all blown apart. It was like the deli section at the grocery <laughs> store. And weird that filming this move, filming these two movies back to back, that that Eastwood would choose to leave that gore out of the depiction of it from a Japanese perspective and have it be so such a big part of it from the American side. Yeah. But but that was the that was a, a really spooky and I thought well executed sort of companion shot. Agreed. Uh, I just looked at it. The budget for Flags of Our Fathers was ninety million dollars and the budget for Letters from Iwo Jima was nineteen million dollars. Wow. It, it does not feel like they are that different in terms of scale. Like I think that there's a few times in Iwo Jima, where you see a special effect that is like a little crappy by comparison. I mean, I guess a lot of that is paying stars in the U.S. probably. Well, but also you get all those scenes where a steam locomotive arrives and they've got 50 1941 cars. Yeah. You know, all that, all those scenes at Soldier Field and stuff. I mean, tons and tons of American extras that it doesn't, that, that when you think about the impact of the two films, you don't really need. I don't think that y- y- this is $90 million worth of movie. No. And especially in a dollar per feels ratio, I just felt so much more in the letters film than I did here. Yeah. I mean, I did really like looking at those trains. Really good trains. Awesome trains movie. That locomotive uh, was not in use until 1949. Uh, I did. I did find a uh, somebody complaining about something in this movie that uh, I thought was a pretty hilarious complaint. Uh, when Ira Hayes goes to visit Ed Block, Harlan Block's father, at his farm near Weslaco, Texas, you see mountains in the background. The Block farm was in the Lower Rio Grande Valley of Deep South Texas, which is quite flat, despite its name. It isn't a valley at all, but the delta of the Rio Grande. The nearest mountains are in northern Mexico, over a hundred miles to the south. <laughs> Movie ruined. Movie ruined. That Block Hayes relationship is something that we're given a couple of looks at in the form of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. But did you ever really feel like that was a major life regret, not picking up 
a hitchhiker that he thought he knew to be Hayes. Like we see that scene several times in the film and then it's in this context of like, if only I'd stopped, maybe I could have saved him. But that wasn't Block. That was that, uh, that was that sergeant that accompanied the guy that, that drove by him and didn't pick him up was the sergeant that They're like PR producer yeah, sergeant. That, that escorted them around the country. That Marine that was kind of always with them. Why do I keep confusing these people? Those guys look really similar though. They have like the same face. So it's not just my fault. Okay. No, no, no. It was, it was something that I had to go like, who's that guy? Yeah. And then I, then I caught a, caught a sort of profile of him and went, Oh, it's the, it's the aged version. The sun baked version of that, of that, high and tight Marine that was with them the whole time. Right. So he, that he spent a lot of time with Hayes on his American tour. And then later was regretting that moment where he drove past him and said, Oh, maybe I should have stopped for that guy, but nah, he was an Indian and I was busy. Do you think this film feels any particular sense of guilt about its treatment of these characters or the, how the characters treat each other? You mean racially? No, I just mean that like you get a couple of looks at the very end, like you see you see Hayes face down behind a barn, dead, the tragic figure of a guy, you know, who was used up and spit out. The tragedy of his death is the potential of him, right? Like he was essentially good, only he didn't have the tools to survive his circumstances or understand them in a way that wouldn't destroy him but like i want to feel i want to feel guilty as a society for failing him and this film never makes a larger case about how this country treats its soldiers or how it uses them to benefit its war making power yeah. or anything like it tells these micro stories in a way that that sets up conflicts and knocks them down and sets up little partitions of guilt and and puts them away but like i wanted a bigger story i think and it was capable of telling it and it just never chose to one third of this movie is trying to be an indictment of our publicity culture our fame culture he's trying to indict our treatment of ira hayes but also trying to tell the saving private ryan story of a generation of guys that didn't talk about their problems and so we didn't hear about this stuff until later. I mean, the the original voiceover narration of the photographer, we start the movie off thinking that the guy that took the famous picture is going to be the... Right, is going to be telling us this story. He's telling us the story. And he's the one that's like, well, the picture was just an accident. And, uh, you know, nobody ever talked about it. And the story never came out until later. And and we're like, we go along with this and here's this old... The, the photographer was Satchmo? Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, let me tell you, kid. But like, we, we get we get that, that... A lot of people didn't realize he had a, another career outside of his music. Shabba-da-doo. Um, I see soldiers raising flags on a mountain. <laughs> But we lose him later. He doesn't, he's not our guide past a certain point. We, the, that, that guide hat gets passed around among a bunch of old dudes that have different sort of. Yeah, Tom McCarthy has to go listen to lots of different guys right. spout off. And that, and that whole uh, young guy interviewing everybody for some book he's, he's writing, that isn't clear until later that that's yeah. where we're supposed to 
it didn't it, see this movie it didn't seem like he was writing a book it seemed like he was just going around and like looking interested in what right. a bunch of old people were yelling at him did you know my dad yeah. were you there uh but we don't get we don't get that background but i eastwood is not the guy i would go to for a movie that indicted america's not uh, known for how woke he is right and 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 it's not and the movie does it but not with a clear purpose because it all he's also trying to make these guys heroic and make the war part heroic i wonder if that stuff was meant more to be like in all quiet on the western front when paul goes back home briefly and just finds a town full of people that have like a bafflingly different understanding of what's going on than he does well for sure but it's an hour yeah. in this movie yeah and maybe the center of the movie but it but it's but we're hammered with it over and over right nobody gets it nobody gets it yeah like they're so they're so tuned out to the like meaning of it that they're pouring strawberry syrup over the dessert confection model of the of the soldiers racing the flag. that was so heavy-handed <laughs> if that wasn't a real event then that was some super heavy-handed filmmaking. Yeah. Was that a meringue or was that ice cream? That was ice cream, I think. Yeah. Ice cream in the mold of the flag raising on Suribachi covered with strawberry sauce. Like, wow. Would you like a little bit of, like, mouse brains on your ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen a movie where a guy was so blown open... That you saw his lungs. We saw lungs in uh, Three Kings, but they were still right. inside somebody. Still functioning lungs, yeah. You definitely got a, a feeling, or at least I did, where if you were a corpsman on Iwo Jima, at a certain point, because we see this in a lot of war movies where they start doing triage and they realize, oh, a lot of these guys can't be saved. Like, we're just going to have to pick the people that have yeah. injuries that can be treated. There's that weird thing, though, of like, a guy that is like definitely bleeding out and like i mean that guy with the the lungs showing was like trying to like pack it all back in and talking to that guy like all right just like keep your hands off of that like put some pressure on it like we're gonna we're gonna see this through i'm gonna go get a stretcher like we've seen i I think that's like a, a real war movie trope right like the medic telling a guy he's gonna make it that is not gonna make it right and uh that doesn't even seem to have any impact on anybody in this movie. He's kind of just like cravenly lying to the guy and not he, like we don't spend any time with him after the guy passes where he feels any of anything about it. He's not treating that guy any differently than like he kind of says, I'm going to go get a stretcher like he says 40 goes, times yeah. in this movie. <laughs> it's like the main thing that anybody says in this movie. I'm going to go get a stretcher, but... By war bonds, I'm going to go get a stretcher. Sometimes he's going to go get a stretcher for somebody that he thinks he can save, but a lot of times he says, I'm going to go get a stretcher for somebody that's clearly going to die in four seconds. If you're lungs guy, shouldn't you be like, you should get another person for the stretcher too, because what are you going to do? Just drag one side of the stretcher? Well, (laughs) lungs guy does say like, why don't you go help somebody that's going to make it? Yeah. But, but, uh, Philippe (laughs) does not distinguish he, he, because, because it's gotta be a part of the Corman's job to kind of be a minister there in those last moments to be like, Give the guy some morphine and whisper in his ear like, yeah. you're going to a better place right. or whatever. Lungs guy almost became my guy because he didn't want anyone to fuss over him. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I really understood that just about like, him. My lungs are right out <laughs> here on the surface, but you know what, you guys just you know what? I'll unwrap the bandage. Just leave the bandage. You guys have a good time. Don't worry about me. <laughs> I would only dirty your stretcher. I liked seeing uh, Rene Gagnon's mom. I wondered why she didn't bring up anything about anybody's commitment to Sparkle Motion. Oh wow! Nice. <laughs> nice call. You like that actor, right? Yeah, for sure. I I never doubted uh, her commitment to Sparkle Motion. Beth Grant, she's great. You get the great Melanie Linsky in this film too. A lot of great casting on the periphery. I thought. Yeah, more uh, more women in this movie than a lot of the movies that uh, that we've watched. We see the Andrews sisters more than once. You get the great Anne Dowd in this film, who isn't in much of this film but is excellent when she is they are women with motivation and uh their own needs and wants which i think is not often the case in war movies like they are not prizes or at risk and need to be saved like even the melanie uh, linsky character like she's like not necessarily like portrayed in a sympathetic light but she's motivated and and interesting in that way you know she sees an opportunity and she takes it she's not just falling in love with him because he's the you know the local boy who made good you can see her executing some kind of a plan that he becomes a part of which I, i think is pretty interesting i mean it's it's interesting that that happens in this movie despite all of the failing failings of it you it's know. like a fifth subplot that, again, is kind of intriguing. And never, yeah, we never get to see where it goes. Right. But. I would love to have seen, I mean, that that's kind of your back to the future relationship where she ends up with McFly and he, <laughs> there are two, two possible futures for her, right? One of them is where he gets a great job with General Motors and, and she picked right. And the other one is, yeah. you know, where she is his density. Yeah, but not just her, like the mothers also are, I mean, they, knowing what they know and, and you know, being like that one woman who's like, I'm pretty sure that's my son in that picture. And, and she, everybody's like, knows no, she no. knows it's not. Yeah. Right? She's the just butt like, mom. tell me that's my son. Am I right? And he's yeah. like, I think probably. Yeah. She knows it's not her son. I mean, that's a pretty insightful part of this movie, the way they're ignored and, and kind of shoved to the side, the way the, like... Some parents are invited to the unveiling of the memorial and some aren't and how even, even after it's known that they were there. Right. What's weird is that and I think it's a I think it speaks to the difference in the time, but that there couldn't have been that 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 side conversation, which is like, hey, look, there's the publicity aspect to this and then there's the real story. Your son actually raised the first flag. We all know that, we all but know it's that, too... But you're not part of the USO tour, but anyway, right. like, here's your gold star, whatever. But because the time was what it was, people weren't capable of that amount of... There was so much else that they were masking and burying that there, that amount of candor, personal candor, was a violation of some kind of social code. Hmm. That was hard for me to to watch and realize that all it would have taken is just to 
yeah, figure just out. explain the situation yeah. to everybody and be like, hey, like we, we realize this is awkward and shitty, but we're kind of backed into a corner on this. But, right. Like everybody knows that JFK but it's because has, of the fabric of of all of the all of those taboos and social codes that that they have to do it this way. Right. Right. You can you can never demonstrate fallibility if you are the decision makers in the military. And it seems to us watching to be insensitivity or um, something else. But it's but it's and uh, this is a thing that this film kind of can't interrogate. (laughs) Uh, But also probably Eastwood came up in a time when I mean, he he came up in that world. So it's something he doesn't think we need to have explained to a younger audience who's like, well, why didn't they just tell everybody this? Why didn't you could just go on TV and say there were two flags. I don't give a shit about that. This was the better photograph. So like moving on. And so Eastwood isn't a good guide through that. Uh, And we're kind of left to left to figure it out for ourselves. Because we just wouldn't be, I mean, but of course these days, if we had a Native American hero like that, I mean, that character in America today would be really lauded and and protected in a way that Ira Hayes was not, yeah. right? He was really left to his own devices. And for the most part, most of the characters that inter- interact with them are like, oh, wow, you're a good Indian. You know, it's, it's, it's almost on the lips of everyone um, in, in just the way that they're incredibly condescending to him. You know, like when that Senator says, did you get him with a Tomahawk chief? Ha ha ha. And he just gets that everywhere he goes and he bears it with such, yeah. with, you know, such dignity. It's so overt that it's like, you almost can't imagine that it hurts that much when everybody that he knows everywhere he goes makes comments like that yeah to the degree that even his handler like fills his coffee cup with some whiskey to like help get him to like nurse him through it because even the handler knows how fucked up that is yeah well thank you for coming on this way to washington to help us out uh i wanted to talk very briefly about the depiction of truman in this film i i commented to adam while we were watching it like you don't see truman depicted that much in film uh, and it's a really short scene, but he's like slick and like very like, you know, like the kind of media angle aspect of the presidency, I feel like is something that Roosevelt is credited as having kind of like understood in a deeper way than any president before him. But like Truman is like, why don't we go like gesture at this photograph while the news photographers snap a couple pics, like very interesting little glimpse at an idea of what that guy might have been like he sure is a president for this story in yeah. the way that that roosevelt is the president for the different kind of war storytelling which is the heroic speech maker like he's so much more polished in this film because he is like everyone else in it he is very aware of how he's seen and wants to help with the myth making in a way that i don't think fdr is often depicted right like the the myth making of fdr is sincere and honorable and that's what i mean with truman it's like it's uh he's more participatory in his own yeah yeah well in a way like true i mean truman was the humblest his story was he's this humble haberdasher who just kind of stumbled into 
a political career and stumbled into the presidency. So he was known as a straight talker and a kind of simple guy who did not put on airs, whereas FDR was an aristocrat. Um, so, so the myth making FDR's version of myth making was very old world and Truman was much more of a administrator and just like, well, we got to get these photographs taken and this is what they need to look like. So here we go. And I don't got a lot of time left in my day. Let's get these bozos out of here. But he's the only person in the film that treats Ira Hayes with any dignity, right? Yeah. He asks him specifically about what tribe he's from and where he grew up. And he communicates directly to him like, wow, you know, that you have had a, you have had an interesting and harrowing life. And you can see Ira Hayes bloom in being asked real questions about himself. It's still a little tone deaf, but he know, but he knows Truman has done some research. He knows enough to treat him like a, is it Truman who who tells him like, you're more of an American than any of us. He says that. He's, and that that's the tone deafness of the time, right? right. Like, yeah. You're the most American one of the whole of us because you're a year we're here before. Bet your anyway. people sure are proud of you, son. Yeah. But but in the but at the time, that's the most humanity Ira Hayes ever saw. Yeah. Um, so like Truman, Truman was not slick. He was just not. He didn't have a lot of that. Um, like contrasting him with all those senators is like insane. Right, those right. the senators are such ding dongs. Truman was not a sleaze, but yeah. also not an aristocrat. Right. You know, he's just a like a guy. He's a shopkeeper, regular ass middle class guy. But who's... but also conscious of like, well, I'm the president, and so <laughs> I got to do these things. Right. Do we get many war films with a specific presidential point of view, like as the A or B story instead of a peripheral character? Like like Truman's almost a cameo yeah. in this film, but I'm trying to I'm struggling to think of a film where the president is the main character of it. We saw FDR a little bit in Pearl Harbor, yeah. the great Pearl Harbor. Yeah. <clears throat> You do see FDR come into movies a lot. You see Stalin come into movies a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the death of Stalin, right? It, we're with Stalin a lot. I haven't seen that. Should that be on our list? It's less about war. Yeah. It's more about politics. The other one that uh, leaps to mind is 13 Days, which is more about the president's bag man than the president, but... And it's not exactly a war film, but it's like... That's the Cuban Missile Crisis film with cold. Kevin Costner? Yeah, and Bruce Greenwood. Well, and I guess I guess Downfall, we spend the whole movie with Hitler. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, wonder, I wonder if the politics of war wouldn't... I mean, that would maybe be a really off-putting movie. Yeah. Um, watching Roosevelt. We see, we see the lead-up to World War II depicted in film a lot because Roosevelt is trying to trying to get America to participate in the war every way he can and he's up against a lot of anti-interventionist Charles Lindbergh style obstructionist congressman. I don't know if there's a movie though that does that. It's so much easier to feel empathy for a soldier than it is for that level of leadership. It would be an unsatisfying war film I think if that were more of a thing. America is really the only country in any of these wars where you could really have, um, I think in Germany and in Russia during World War II, they did bring heroes back and kind of parade them around, um, but not 
the scale that we were capable of doing in America. Yeah. Where it's like, now you're in the White House, but there, no bomb is ever going to land on the White House <laughs> in this movie, right? Truman's got, he's also, he's also talking to people about floral arrangements right. in a way that Hitler and Stalin never, never were, or Tojo. Hitler is just talking about vegetarian meals at this point. You sure know a lot about Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> you must be a real fan. Big fan. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> you know, he actually had a lot of good ideas. <laughs> uh, we talked about Lungs Guy and some of the effects work in the film. One thing we didn't interrogate <laughs> up to now was Scott Eastwood's head. Yeah. How about the idea of being Clint Eastwood directing your son in a film and then cutting his head off in a battle scene? And having it roll across. I mean, that was a pretty egregious special effect. And Head the, in helmet. And the lips, like, still moving. <laughs> like, the, Scott the, Eastwood the had to have kept lips the head, in, right? in Hollywood still moving. You know that head is on a mantle somewhere in yeah. the Eastwood mansion. <laughs> it's a newel post there. A lot, of, uh, a lot of the effects houses have in their contracts that they actually get to keep the stuff at the end. Um, and I got to go to one in LA one time and they had um, robot Bill and Ted like up like mounted up on the wall because they use them as like as show pieces to get future yeah. work and they're like yeah we've g-. and they also had um, uh, Nick Cage and, uh, and Travolta. John Travolta from Face Off the bodies that they do the, the operation on they built like whole like perfect photorealistic Nick Cage and John Travolta naked bodies so that they could like actually cut the faces off and swap them. That's great. And uh, you push a button and they start breathing. <laughs> they like built something in to, to make the chests rise and fall. It was pretty uh, pretty That's fun thing fun. to see. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying Scott Eastwood's head, probably not. Maybe uh, in the Eastwood home. I mean, like if you're Clint Eastwood and uh, your son asks you a favor, I feel like you could probably get the prop house to part with the Scott Eastwood head. But you know, he was... 20 when this movie was made and yeah. I think that he's probably too young too callow to recognize that a robot head of himself would be a cool thing to have on them. He's probably thinking you know what I'm going to be in a million movies I'm going to see a million robot heads of myself I'm going to have my head cut off a thousand times by the time my career's over Yeah, why would I, why would I want to keep this one? It doesn't even <laughs> look like me <laughs> it doesn't exactly look like no it doesn't it looks like you a really have head. to like we, we like had to rewind and go back and look at whose whose body got blown up to see what head that was he's out of his goddamn mind you got your robert patrick's you got your neil mcdonough's you have your jamie bells in this film but you also have paul walker like this film makes a very specific choice about only making it about the three main characters yeah cast is kind of stacked after the top three but again, like super shallow character making for those guys. A fairly thankless Paul Walker role. Paul Walker's presence in this film felt exactly like Vin Diesel's presence in Saving Private Ryan, or as yes. kind of an unremarkable part for a guy that then went on to be in Fast and Furious movies. Well put. <laughs> I'll say. Why wasn't Vin Diesel in this movie? Vin Diesel should be in every war movie, I think, as like the bald guy with like a street accent. Yeah. Feels like Jesse Bradford's character could have been the Bronx guy, but they didn't really Bronx him up. No, he wasn't very Bronxed. Barry Pepper could have been Bronxed. Also, unbronxed. 
Yeah, why would they leave these characters unbronzed? Almost totally unbronzed. <laughs> Although we did get the character of the mayor of New York City there uh, during the Times Square thing, the guy that that was in the 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 uh, he's giving me the high hat. Oh yeah, the uh, Joe actor. Polito character. Yeah, yeah. Who's just like <laughs> here Ethic- they are. Ethically, he's a little bit shaky. <laughs> they bronxed the shit out of him. Wow. Paul Walker had already been in The Fast and the Furious and Too Fast, Too Furious before he made this movie. I didn't realize that was the timeline. He was a big... He was a big... He's kind uh, of a star at this I point. I mean, not a big star. Those movies were were fringe movies, right, at first? I mean, they were, they were surprise hits. Yeah, they were surprise hits. Surprise hits. But I guess the opportunity to work with Eastwood on an epic Iwo Jima picture, you probably take a smaller role. Gotta do it. Yeah. Get in there. Maybe end up being like Private Ryan, go on to become a big, big star. I mean, at this moment in time, Hand of Eastwood was not pejorative. Like, you have some <laughs> some optimistic feelings about where your career would go. Right. As and related you know, we, to his. We talk about Eastwood pejoratively a lot because of his recent sort of behavior, but he's a titan of American film and has made an awful lot of good films. I don't want to always be doubting the motivations of Clint Eastwood. Uh, or rather I should say I'm not doing it because he made uh grand Torino. I'm doing it because of who he's always been. Right. I mean, he's dirty Harry. Yeah. And so it, he's not the guy that I want or not the guy I would turn to, to interrogate America. Yeah, I mean, one away from a bingo if you're keeping score of that pronunciation. Yeah, who's going to interrogate that pronunciation again? I think that, like, some of that high and mighty shit at the beginning of the movie, like, you might, you might be judgmental of war if you've never been in one. Right. It's like that really had me rolling my eyes because that's that really feels like it's Clint Eastwood trying to hit us over the head with something he believes. But as far as I know, he was never a soldier. He's always been a Hollywood pretty boy. Yeah. But it, but we see that in American sniper really, really bludgeoning us. Yeah. And this was what, uh, not even 10 years before, but, but uh, he was, a he was, he it was, was just, he was like testing the water for those kinds of ideas before enough. Right. That, yeah. But, but I think at the time that seemed maybe still, it's hard to look back at recent history and see it as being a different era that in 2005, but in 2005, you could, there were a lot of things you would say in film that you wouldn't say now um, in both directions, right? A lot of things that seem kind of prehistoric to us, but also a lot of things that maybe uh, were felt new then, like a new way of uh, a new criticism that now feels even in that short amount of time feels kind of hackneyed. Right. Most of the time, they are not who we think they are. Not a lot of anti-Japanese invective in this film. For a film telling the American side, Pearl Harbor had more yeah. than this film. Makes me wonder if Eastwood was saving it for uh, Gran Torino. There was not a, enough cigarette smoking either. Let me just go on record again and say, <laughs> stop cutting the cigarettes out of these movies. I uh, I read something about how uh, Spike Lee and Clint Eastwood had a bit of a squab- a public squabble over these two movies, uh, and Spike Lee's criticism was that there weren't any 
black characters in in either movie and like why make um you know four hours of film about about something without it and Eastwood was just like yeah like the marines weren't integrated and like there weren't really any examples of like black soldiers on the front lines of that battle there was one shot on the deck of the ship i mean we don't know what they do they might be cooks like uh, cuba gooding jr in pearl harbor i think that's the implication and they they look um they all kind of look disappointed right they're talking about hitting the hitting the beaches and yeah and you get that feeling that the that there were black sailors and that they weren't yeah, given a participatory role, but I that's the it, last we see. I don't really understand like where the lines were drawn on integrating the military because if Ira Hayes is definitely not white, look, what is the logic there? I mean, it, it falls apart, right? The racist logic. Uh, like, well, we just wanted one guy to say a bunch of slurs to all the time, so we made an exception or something. You know, the Native American community has always participated in the u.s military like from the very early days there were indians that joined the u.s army and ones that were the enemy of the u.s army we always had alliances with the tribes yeah and they talk about that a little bit right the, yeah that ira hayes's tribe had historically been aligned with the U.S. military. And there was a sense, I think, of Native American soldiers that they were kind of like Gurkhas, like extremely fierce warriors within the U.S. Army hmm. and, and within the kind of culture of the American West to go into the U.S. Army was seen as a positive thing culturally because it was a reflective of a warrior culture. But of course, going into the U.S. military was also a a super big part of the American black experience. Right. But I think the the failure of the of integration and the the racist culture of the military was just there were so f- so few native Americans relative to the number of American blacks that were in the service. Right. So making a policy like barring them was like almost not even worth wasting the time or effort on. I mean honestly, I don't I can't speak with that much authority. That's something we should probably research. Yep. Ben's more of an authority on racism than either of us. I know. Well, it's because he's more woked. He goes to all the conferences. <laughs> he does, yeah. I mean, the the biggest authority is uh, Clint Eastwood. I was looking so hard for a, for a moment of pedantry about somebody misusing a slur or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, he got it all right. <laughs> he was very careful. <laughs> If there's one thing I want my movie to be accurate about. (laughs) (laughs) This film is rich with talismans to use for, uh, for a film review portion of a podcast. I was teased by the idea of using that ice cream sculpture Mm -hmm. as the rating system for this. Or the papier-mâché surabachi on the football field. (laughs) But it's too obvious. I I need you guys to need me to do this. You You, want us to want you? If you had to to select a rating system for this film, I think you could do that yourself and you would choose one of those things and you'd be fine. That's right. No, that's what Ben and I would do. We'd be like, oh yeah, paper mache surabachi. I'm better. (laughs) This is my only job here. (laughs) So I will choose something better. Something that isn't even tangible. What is this film really about? It's not about 
Iwo Jima. It's about a relationship between a father and a son. <laughs> and that's what I don't like about it. <laughs> it defeats what is at its core. Like, what is it trying to do? That confused me for the entire film. It is, on the one hand, less a war film than many of the films that we've seen, and yet we get so much combat. I wonder if we grade its wariness on a curve because of its proximity to letters from Iwo Jima. It's a drama. It's a scandal. It's a paternalistic mishmash. And, and that paternalism <laughs> is, is a relationship between a country and its military and between a father and a son who might not know the truth of his, of his military experience. And I hated the part at the end where the stories come to a point and we discover the awkward truth of what this was really about. This was about a son hugging his father on a hospital bed, telling him that he couldn't have asked for a better father. I don't know why films do this as if... I'm just going to ask you guys, do you know anyone who has a great and healthy relationship with their father, including you? Why is this constantly trotted out as a thing that is normal? Well, this is why. No one has a good relationship with their father. And Clint Eastwood probably is like, please, Scott Eastwood, please love me when I'm dying. I don't understand. I love my dad. I'm not saying that any of us here don't love our fathers, but it is not this easy. It's so simplistic that he's like, I wish I could have been a better father to you. Talk to you more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dad, 20% more talking and we would have been great. <laughs> well, and this is the greatest generation and the baby boomer generation having all of these conversations with one another, right? There's none. We, uh, the generations that followed, are not in this story. It's never about the father acting in his own agency to create a better relationship with his son. The son gets him off the hook here and in many other films of this kind. The floppy-haired son with the rackety-tackety laptop computer keyboard. I wish you could just lop off the bookends of this film and experience it in the context of the battle at Iwo Jima and the awkward aftermath that results from it. But you can't. That relationship is the fly in that ointment on a scale of one to five relationships with your father. Oh. I'm giving this film two. <laughs> two I, relationships with a father. I feel like this, this rating system is fucked up because not only is it incomparable to all other ratings, but like our own individual relationship yeah. with our father confound it being compared to each other. <laughs> Cause my, I'm gonna say as depicted in the film, like like that relationship okay. with a person's father is the rating from one to five we're giving it. Hate to compare it to Pearl Harbor, but I kind of think it's got the same problem, which is that there's some good movies in here, and it is so caught up in itself that it doesn't know to cut out the parts that aren't good. And there's a bunch of interesting stories to tell around these characters and about this event and about what they went through. And it's sort of the Jack of all trades, master of none version of that. Um, 
it really did feel like a shame that this one was so bad given that it cost more than four times as much as Letters from Iwo Jima and uh, and acted as a drag on Letters for Iwo Jima because it was received so poorly I think fewer people saw that film than they would have if this right. had been a, a better film I really wonder about the logic of order of release like I think I liked it more because I saw Letters from Iwo Jima first this time so um yeah, I'll uh, I'll join you at two relationships with a father as depicted in this movie. I'd recommend watching the two films together. I think that there it's a more interesting work of art seen in concert, but I think that this is by far the weaker of the two films if they stand alone. You look at those films made proximate to the 40s and it feels like those were the films that would be sanctimonious. But they often aren't. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Why does time add that? Well, it's time and ideology. I mean, it's what Clint Eastwood wants to say about yeah. World War II, not what somebody that was actually there. Yeah. He really drapes himself in the flag in directing this movie in a way that I think is pretty schlocky and in bad taste. There, there's something about doing a war movie about a generation that's that's gone that's all that's either dying or gone that feels like you can't be as critical of them because you want to because it feels like you're kicking them when they're old yeah. you know like you can make a world war ii movie that's pretty harsh in 1955 because everybody's still young and can they can, can argue yeah, yeah argue for themselves and you can use the actual footage right. and it looks about the same because the film stock hasn't improved that much but to, you know, to make a, a movie about the greatest generation in World War II in 2000 or 2005, um, that's the exact sweet spot of where you're not going to have anything really trenchant to say, because all that stuff is starting to make the transition into myth, but hasn't made it all the way through to where you can start to unpack it again. In 15 years, how much darker is the retelling of this story once this generation is actually gone? Well, because in 15 years, we would really look at that USO tour with a with a hard lens. Yeah. Um, and maybe wouldn't feel the necessity to put in the Iwo Jima footage, uh, except as flashback. I agree with everything you guys said. There's three movies here. There's, an, there's a movie about the U.S. invasion of Iwo Jima, which is a story we've seen told enough times to feel kind of like we don't need it retold. Right. And that's uh, that's partly... Maybe the best amount of restraint in the movie is that they don't just retell that for like the first hour. Yeah, right. They don't. It's not a three-hour movie where two of it is retelling Iwo Jima. But we do get a lot of Iwo Jima. And if I think if this movie was made today, it would be about that USO tour and we'd see Iwo Jima in a few important flashbacks, but we wouldn't spend, we wouldn't spend a third of the movie as a war movie. Um, and then the USO tour is, is a fascinating and, and all, Alternately biting, but also not quite doesn't just it just doesn't spend enough time exploring everything it needs to explore. It does. I mean, it indicts the politicians. It indicts the general public. 
it certainly shines a light on uh, on racism and on American sort of deludedness, uh, but it doesn't go very far into that. It plays it, it definitely doesn't play it for laughs. It doesn't give us a lot of new insight. Yeah, and then there's that third movie, that's the one that that you hate, Adam, so much, and that we all just feel like, why is this movie here? It's not. It doesn't. It feels contractually obligated. It just feels right. It just feels like, like, do not. You don't need to make Saving Private Ryan. And I and I honestly, I feel the hand of Spielberg. Yeah. Yes. The the uh, the Venn diagram of. Eastwood and Spielberg is like all like exploitative use of emotion that is unjustified. Like, yeah. And I'm sure the one thing that they were like probably in the office, like, yeah, that's the best part of the (laughs) Spielberg put his feet up on his desk at the end of this and felt like he'd done a great job. Um, But all that old man stuff gave us nothing but treacle. But the other two movies I think are interesting enough. And absolutely. I agree with you that, Letters from Iwo Jima is the superior film that watching it first makes this a better movie. And it's be- and partly it's because it's so economical mm-hmm. and the, the wide scope of this just, just dooms it. But I'm going to give it three relationships with your father. <laughs> um, and partly it is that, you know, my father fought in World War II in the Pacific. And I'm Generation X, so he had me late in life. But watching those guys and trying to imagine, I didn't watch this movie with my dad, but he was alive when this movie came out, and his all his cronies were. And I spent a lot of time with those guys, sitting around listening to them relitigate World War II and what they were capable of talking about, and what they never, ever, ever would talk about. It's not a language that we speak real like Church of Latter-day Saints television commercial style, like tear jerky stuff. Like they all got sentimental, but they got sentimental about the music. They got sentimental about the, about this kind of like, was I a good dad? And not really spend a lot of time with like, do you remember when I put that guy's lungs back in? You know, they just had a, a different experience. So I have to give it that extra relationship with it, with your dad. Very rare episode of Friendly Fire where John's rating comes in higher numerically than Adam and Ben's. Yeah, and I, ju- I, ju- I want those other two movies to be this movie. I want maybe yeah. one of those movies to be this movie with the other movie in a supporting role and the third movie not to be there. But that movie in the middle of this movie is still a good movie. All right. Well, I think we need to uh, discuss who our guys are. Am I right? I got a guy. Who's your guy? A guy that goes overboard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was reading about him. That's a a real thing that happened. Um, There's a uh, description of it by Richard Wheeler, a veteran of the fighting, quote, According to Coast Guardsman Chet Hack of LST-763, we got the man overboard signal from the ship ahead of us. We turned to port to avoid hitting him and threw him a life preserver, but had orders not to stop. We could not hold up 24 ships for one man. 
Looking back, we could see him waving his arms, and it broke our hearts that we couldn't help him. We hoped that one of our destroyers or other small men of war that were cruising around to protect us would pick him up, but we never heard that they did. It's an image that is like about as painful as the one in uh, Master and Commander when they have to cut the the piece of rigging loose that's dragging them as they're going around the southern tip of South America. It's a feeling that I feel very keenly most of the time. Nobody can save me. I just need to not go overboard. <laughs> that's what I need to do. I need to be very careful about not going overboard. You just hung up in the rigging. Yeah. 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 Don't don't let go. We we're, we're not coming back for you, Ben. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Adam? Do you have a guy? Boy, I'm just I'm just sitting in how well you articulated that moment, how scarily it felt to watch that scene, how scarily accurate your response to it was. It was one of the few things this film really like center masked the emotional target of what it was trying to do because like the jocularity of the moment, the idea of this on the one hand being a joke and then on the other hand being the worst thing ever, like a moment later was so well done here. And it I hits wish you as a viewer a little bit ahead of when it hits the soldiers, right. which makes it hurt a little bit more. Yeah. Before it hits the Marines, I'm sorry. Right, Marines aren't soldiers. If at any point in this show we said soldier when we meant Marine, please uh, write your address your letter to Adam Pranica. <laughs> uh, cut for time on Twitter. Uh, he is going to be fielding all of your uh, military don't, just don't. problems. Leave us alone. <laughs> Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or never get in touch. Those, that's the only way we want to hear from your, anybody. Your two options. I don't usually choose guys this big, but Ira Hayes is my guy huh. because his discomfort with his circumstances is such that like he can't have it any kind of way he's uncomfortable with the credit he's uncomfortable with the blame he doesn't like the attention he is willing to argue against the inaccuracies of the story that he's being written into in real time he is totally powerless in the face of all of these conspiring forces he his character is so complex and yet like the end of his story is the greatest inaccuracy like like he died in basically a bar fight but in this film they just show him face down outside of a barn where he could have died from exposure but like the circumstances of his death are fucked up and unresolved even now i just really felt for a person who like you know, on the surface, it sure looks like he's been given a ton of power and agency, but he does not have any at all. Yeah. And I just thought a ton about his story as we were going through it. Really wish he was the main character that his character deserved to be. Yeah. It's such an interesting story. It really, it really packs a lot up about the way America thinks of itself in the war. Like, it's a war for freedom, and this hero of it, has zero freedom in the end. This is not the best film we'll watch for this project, but it is almost the most emblematic of the, th of the thesis of the podcast, yeah. which is confronting the ways in which a country depicts itself 
in wartime. And this film is so conflicted. Yeah. It's too bad that this movie was made because that movie has a, has a much uh, smaller chance of being made Yeah, because this movie is two thirds of the way to being that movie. Right. And how are you going to say like, we need to tell the story of Ira Hayes and we need to show Iwo Jima in order to make his character understandable. And that's going to take some money but we also need to show his childhood. We need to show his enlistment. We need to show his boot camp. We need to show his his USO tour, and then we need to show the aftermath in order to really, and that is the story of the United States, and that is the story of war movies, and that, you know, there's, there's so much there. Yeah. The Ira Hayes Biloxi blues story could be told. Right, right. Because every step of the way, yeah. from his childhood to his education on a reservation school, I mean, the fact that that dumbass in Chicago tries to speak to him in what he imagines is some, you know, some uh, yeah. Native Don't American words. el biblioteco. <laughs> yeah. And, and he doesn't understand them. And what we yeah. don't get is him saying, look, in the schools that I was sent to, we weren't allowed to speak my language. That's why I don't understand your dumb yeah. uh, version of it. You know, like Thanks, all, Senator. Yeah, all that stuff we need, we need to, to see in a movie. And yeah. we, just, we don't get it. Who's your guy, John? Well, you know, I, love, I loved uh, Barry Pepper as Sergeant Strank. Um, He's another... Barry Pepper is the best. He's He's really great in this. He came in right from Saving Private Ryan, right? I mean, he's like, (laughs) he's a really different dude. Yeah. uh, Between that movie and this, but another great dude. Yeah. Does not kiss a crucifix one single time in this movie. (laughs) No, he doesn't. But still super capable, you know, character. Yeah. Um, But anytime Neil McDonough is in a movie playing a very capable officer uh in this case captain severance i just gravitate to him i gravitate to his ice blue eyes and to the fact that i just want to be his pal (laughs) and he's the classic guy that i love in a war movie which is the likable and capable commanding officer somewhere in the middle of the chain he's the captain who's actually on the battlefield you know, weirdly, he shows up later in this movie, played by a different actor as one of the guys that survived into old age. But anytime uh, Neil McDonough's on the screen, I was riveted. He's in so much stuff, but he's ne- he's never overused. He's yeah. he's always an appreciated that guy in whatever he does. Yeah, he is. He's always that guy. And he was in Band of Brothers and he's sort of that guy in Band of Brothers. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, he just has that. I love an officer that isn't played as a somebody who's so hard bitten that he's that he can no longer care about 2000 men dying (laughs) or somebody that is uh, that is politically corrupt or out of touch. I don't like any of those officers, but an officer like this, that that the men respect and that does a good job like he listens to he listens to his sergeant. When his sergeant says, don't promote me, I want to be with the men. Like, he goes, Mm -hmm. okay, I get it. Like, screw you because I need you, but at the same time, I get that relationship and I'll I'll look for someone else. Like, right, I'm gonna uh, like help you honor the commitment you've already made. Yeah. That was a great moment. It's a great it's a great war movie moment and 
He's my guy. Well, guys, what do we uh, what do we say to picking our next movie? All right, random well, selection is back in effect. So someone uh, pedantically explained to us via email that this hundred-sided die has a name and a provenance. Oh, um, it's called an ico- icosahedron. Hmm. Oh no, I'm sorry, but it's also called a zochihedron. Whoa. The Zochihedron is named after its inventor, Lou Zochi. Hey, thanks, Lou. <laughs> you thought, what if there were more sides on a die? <laughs> and then you did it. <laughs> I heard you liked sides on a die. <laughs> so I put sides on sides on that die. He was uh, famously the host of the one episode MTV show, Pimp My Die. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here we go. Here's the Zoki Zoki Zo. I, I don't know two two C's and an H. Is it K or Sh? Zokihedron, Zokihedron, Zochihedron. It's got to be one of those. Ankylosaur. <laughs> here it goes. <laughs> really goes and goes. It does. And the number is 68. So close to being nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it well, it's 69 adjacent. We are going to. Which is what, how you've lived your whole life, Adam. Oh. <laughs> I've heard it's very nice. So 68. Pretty exciting movie. It's, a, it's going to hit our World War II hat trick, however. So, uh. So next time, we're going to have to uh, move all the World War II films down to the bottom of the list and not include them for eligibility. This is a 2009 film directed by Quentin Tarantino. Uh-oh. It is Inglorious oh, Bastards. Dear. Oh, dear. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. That will be a big ep. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll uh, let Rob's take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor. Go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmar. And our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on your social media platform of choice. We've got Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, a lot of people to talk about these episodes with. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can support the show financially by going to MaximumFun.org donate. Or you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate all of the support, and we'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.